Pathologists have used the same technology to make diagnoses for the past 150 years. Tissue sections mounted on glass slides examined under the light microscope. Will pathology be able to go fully digital and enter the 21st century? Our guest today is Dr. Michael Bonham, Chief Medical Officer of Procia, a company looking to perfect cancer diagnosis through intelligent software. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Michael Bonham, Chief Medical Officer of Procia. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Joe. Mike, uh, what's going on? Why haven't we been able to go fully digital in pathology? The technology's been with us for nearly 20 years, since the early 2000s. We've been able to scan slides. I think in terms of speed, efficiency, and accuracy, many pathologists would tell us that they're doing just fine without it, which may be surprising uh, to many folks who would naturally assume that technology can generally improve performance, but not necessarily so in this case. I think secondary benefits of being able to collaborate and share cases with colleagues across the world has been nice, but certainly uh, still somewhat inconvenient. And image analysis, which many thought would move us forward, hasn't really added much. So where do things stand now? I think that's a good starting point. And for everyone to be on the same page, maybe we should just walk through what pathology is and how it's currently practiced. Pathology is part of 70% of all medical decisions come from a pathology lab. And so much of what happens to a patient is really dependent on that pathology diagnosis. However, you know, I think most people would be surprised to know that the practice of pathology is still remarkably outdated. So just to walk through what happens, let's say a patient goes to a dermatologist and they have a biopsy taken. The tissue from the biopsy is then packaged up in a jar. It's sent away either to the basement of the hospital or perhaps even to a lab that's hundreds of miles away. When the tissue arrives there, it gets cut into thin pieces, very thin, and mounted onto a glass slide. The slides are then carried over to the pathologist where they end up sitting on the pathologist's desk. And you can imagine that they're actually piles of these slides, hundreds of glass slides, sitting on the pathologist's desk every single day. When the pathologist sits down to make a diagnosis, they sit at their desk and they pick up you know, one of these glass slides and place it on a microscope. And then they have to look for very small and, and subtle features. It can be kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack to find one or two cells that could signify whether there's a tumor on the slide or not. The microscope technology we use is not that different than what you may have used in eighth grade biology class. Pathologists have been using microscopes for over 150 years. So that's kind of an overview of what happens in pathology. In all fairness, it has been uh, tremendously effective and tremendously accurate. But there's got to be more. What challenges are we facing and how are we going to get to the next level? Pathology has been very effective in terms of what it's been asked to do. The question is, what does the future hold? And in terms of challenges, it is very clear that our current pathology workforce, our technology infrastructure, will not be able to support the global demand for access to pathologist expertise. Throughout the world, labs do not have enough staff to meet the demand that will be required for pathology. So that's a very dramatic problem to consider. Beyond that, there are core challenges to the practice that 
limit what we can do. I'll sum them up as one being pathology is a manual process, pathology is a subjective process, and pathology is largely an inefficient process given the state of technology that we have available to us in other parts of our lives. People would be extremely surprised to see how diagnoses have been made and are being made, and it's essentially a subjective opinion, hopefully a well-informed opinion, but ultimately it is just the opinion in some sense of the pathologist looking through the microscope. Scope. Exactly. And I, I often people you know want to think that when they send a sample back to the lab that it's run through a computer and you get a yes no answer. Unfortunately, that's not quite the case. At the end of the day, it is still dependent on a human being looking through a microscope, trying to recognize patterns. These patterns are, can be difficult to interpret. For this reason, the process is inherently subjective. You know, it's sort of analogous to two people looking at a piece of art. Quite often, they may have a different perspective. Sometimes there may not even be a right answer to what something represents. Often, you, you have two pathologists review the same case. Let's use prostate as an example. Both pathologists look at the same slide. One might say, oh, I think there's a low-grade cancer here. For the doctor treating the patient, they say, well, I'm going to leave this cancer alone. Another pathologist might look at the same slide and say, I think there's a high-grade cancer there. Then the surgeon say, well, we need to do surgery. We need to remove this prostate because there's high-grade cancer. And there's been numerous studies that have looked at this. We know that this disagreement rate can be well over 30%. It's something that is an unrecognized problem. Clearly, it can be solved through getting second opinions, getting access to expert pathologists. But that's not always easy, or is it available to, to many patients? pathology has been has performed well in terms of what pathologists have been asked to do and I think that's maybe a point of departure because I think we're able to when we get into grading the tumor either Gleason grading in prostate cancer or grading in breast cancer and other tumors that's where we begin to be able to add the predictive and prognostic value. And that's where I think there's going to be so much potential to go above and beyond what we've done before. And I think even pathologists would probably be surprised to realize that grading is not even included anywhere in clinical practice guidelines for breast cancer. So there's so much more opportunity for pathologists to add value. Definitely agree. You know, on tasks like grading, biology is a continuum. When you ask a pathologist to say, let's just make up grades, is this a one, two, or three? You have three choices. And oftentimes, that's not how biology works. So you might have 1.5 or you might have a 2.5 grade. How do you classify that? And that's where we run into difficulty. The human eye can only is only able to classify cases on very broad levels, and it's not able to quantitate the vast amount of information that is present, you know, within any um, uh, slide under the microscope. So that leads us to, you know, the number of cases that where the diagnosis is open to interpretation is because we're being forced to place place a diagnosis within a bucket. And part of the reason why, in my opinion, grading is not that successful in predicting outcome is because of this, is because of this subjectivity in what is the ground truth. And this is part of the promise of digital pathology, as I'm sure we'll get into. So before we get too far, you also mentioned uh, challenges with staffing and the workforce. We certainly hear that there are challenges regarding a shortage of pathologists. I'm not sure what to believe in the United States. It seems to be a very contentious and maybe even political issue. But is this true as far as you can tell in the U.S. and, and worldwide? Is it a bigger problem? It is definitely a bigger problem worldwide. I can only speak to what was recently published. A study found that 
the number of pathologists in the workforce uh, decreased 18% over the past 10 years. Meanwhile, the average pathologist workload, as defined by number of new cancer cases they have to look at, went up 42%. To me, that doesn't seem like a sustainable trend. You look worldwide, there are dramatic differences. The U.S. has probably the most pathologist per person, although Canada may, may actually be ahead of us now. Certainly in parts of Europe, there are dramatic shortages in pathologists. You only have to go read what is happening with the NHS. They are making gigantic investments in technology as the only way to address their shortage of pathologists. I talked to a pathologist in one country in Europe. He said, don't tell anyone this, but I have a three-week pile of cases to get at. Those patients are waiting three weeks for a result. It's just unbelievable when, when, when you think about in the U.S., would we tolerate that? That's astounding, and certainly you wouldn't want to hear about that with regards to a family member or a loved one waiting three weeks or more for a diagnosis. No, I mean, I, you'd want to know. Obviously, you want to know right away because everything forward that you will do is based on the pathology result. And, and furthermore, when you look at countries beyond Europe, when you look at Asia, for example, the number of pathologists is orders of magnitude lower. These are also the countries that are growing the fastest. When you look at China, India, countries are not only growing in population size, they're growing dramatically in wealth. When you look at the next billion people on this planet to enter the middle class, I think 70 to 80% of them will be from China and India. They're going to want good health care. Who are the pathologists to provide them that? It really is a question that I, I think about a lot. How are we going to solve this problem? Even further, there are countries in this world where there are no pathologists. I was talking to a country in Southeast Asia. I said, well, how many pathologists do you have in your whole country? I said, four. I said, four? I have four pathologists next door to me. You really have to put it into perspective how large this global problem is. This does sound like a large challenge. Now, speaking of inefficiencies and staffing, there was a wave of consolidation in pathology in the early 2000s with large players such as Quest Diagnostics and Ameripath, and even in some cases, hospital systems buying up pathology practices. And the administrators discovered a new tool called FedEx to transport glass slides and were able to uh, squeeze out a lot of the inefficiencies in the practices. Do you think we're going to be able to squeeze out even more inefficiencies using digital pathology without the need to ship glass slides around? We are. And I got to say that I have received FedEx packages myself, gigantic FedEx packages that probably cost $50, $100 to send with one slide in, inside them. It's, it's almost comical, but it's not. In terms of the efficiency gains, there's been some studies and evidence to show moving to digital does allow for some gains. The problem is the gains that we're seeing are not enough to justify the infrastructure cost, the IT efforts, changing people's ways of doing things. They're not enough to, to, to move the needle. And that's really why we're trying to offer something entirely new. So what is the promise of digital pathology? You have to think about what is the promise of any transition from an analog process to a digital process. Think about how we used to listen to records and we used to use typewriters. And now we would never consider going back to those ways. Digital technology has really changed everything that we do in our, in our lives right now. Yet in medicine, that transition is much more difficult. When it comes to getting the diagnosis for disease you may have, we still live in an analog world. The promise is that once you take that glass slide 
and it is scanned, that slide is now virtualized. It is a piece of data that can be parsed in any way, can be copied, can be sent anywhere, can be moved and manipulated, can be analyzed. Just enormous exponential opportunities are created that clearly are not possible on, on a glass slide. The information that is locked in this tissue on the glass, it's very rich. Any one slide, once it's scanned, it generates very large image files. You know, much bigger than than a CT scan, 10 times bigger. There's so much data sitting there that we're not able to use because it is beyond what any one human being can interpret. Thousands of cells, three-dimensional structures, organized to make normal and abnormal shapes and structures and colors. It's just incredible the amount of, of information that is there. So digital pathology brings that to life. Yeah, I think we're really on the verge of something huge here. And there's so much rich information there that I don't think people I mean, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say that this could be potentially comparable to unlocking the human genome, the amount of data and information we're going to uncover and be able to to utilize. No, I, I, I totally agree. I make an analogy, you know, back in the day when working in the laboratory, we used to have to pour gels and then we would run DNA to the gels and you'd get a sequence. You'd maybe get, if you're lucky, 100 base pairs and you have to sit there you know, sort of basically decide, you know, do it yourself, basically. You know, and that was, you know, I don't know, 30 years ago. And look at where we are today with next generation sequencing and, and the ability to sequence the whole genome, you know, in, in hours and, and for less than $1,000. That's all because of a transformation to digital. And so the really, the possibilities are really exciting when you put it in that perspective. When you think about what happened with genomics, from going from manual sequencing to next generation sequencing. My hope is that we're talking of discoveries that are on the same you know, magnitude. I would also say beyond the new discoveries that'll take place, there is a gigantic change that'll happen to the field. Pathologists will no longer be physically constrained. You know, as pathologists, we live largely a siloed existence, chained to the microscope in a way. We have to exist wherever that microscope is, wherever that lab is. Imagine a world where you don't. Imagine a world that is somewhat decentralized and, and it's digital, where you have instantaneous sharing of information. You have remote viewing. You're quantifying details that are just way beyond what any you know human being can track. So that is what excites me about the practice of pathology. But ultimately, the promise of digital pathology all comes down to what is the benefit. And in my mind, it is going to be increased accuracy, reduced subjectivity, better patient outcomes, and is really the only solution that is going to meet the demand problem that we discussed earlier about the number of pathologists available versus the need for pathologists. Pathology is often compared with its counterpart specialty, radiology, which has been fully digitized for some time now. Why has it taken so long, and will pathology finally be ready to make the leap? This is a complicated subject, and there, there are many reasons. To me, it is still remarkable that digital pathology is still at very low adoption rates in the U.S. Probably less than 5% of labs routinely use digital pathology for clinical use. I think number one is, as we touched on earlier, 
The microscope works well for what pathology has been asked to do. But as we're finding out and as we're, dis as we're discussing, the microscope is maxed out. The complexity of treatments and information required for those treatments goes up every year. The amount of information required for a individual case for a patient, it's exponentially increasing. It is beyond what any person can provide using a microscope, and it's only going to increase. It's only going in one direction. The microscope has gotten us far, but now you know we need to think of something different. But why is this not happening? Uh, number one, medicine in, in general is resistant to change. There are very serious consequences for error. You have to do a lot of clinical studies and validation to make sure anything that you're changing is not going to do harm, but it's going to benefit patients. So we need good evidence. Number two, the images are giant in size, requires a huge amount of processing, storage, and infrastructure. In many ways, this has not been routinely available. However, that's changing. That requires you know, a large investment for labs who want to work digitally. So you have this significant overhead cost to make the transition. And you also have a transition in how you practice. So if you're used to using a microscope for 20 or 30 years, you can't just flip on a monitor and say, oh, now I'm going digital. It's just not how the human brain works. You're, you're accustomed to the feel and the it's, it's sort of a mind-body connection that you have that you've been doing for 30 years. You can't just say that it's going to be exactly the same using a monitor. Now it can be, but it takes some time. We also need to show very clearly there's value from an outcome basis to go digital. You know, I think you can make the cost argument, you know, that's debatable, but once you have a value argument for outcomes, that really changes the equation. And so I really hope that we we begin to see outcome-based evidence that shows labs that are digital, their patients are doing better. That's when I think you really start to see the move. Finally, we do have regulatory hurdles, in, particularly in the U.S. The FDA, back in almost eight years ago, declared a, a slide scanner to be a medical device. But in contrast, the microscope basically has the same use case. It is essentially unregulated. It's been very hard to have the regulatory evidence to support going digital, although we now do. We've had two approvals with the Philips system and the Leica system, I expect that we'll see more in the coming years. So that's a big step that will really help drive this transition. Well, I think we have a lot to look forward to, and it feels like we're just scratching the surface. Mike, how can people learn more about Procia and digital pathology? We have a website, Procia.com. That is probably the best destination. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. We give a number of webinars every year. We come to all the major conferences, so we try to be as available as possible. Our guest has been Dr. Michael Bonham of Procia. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast.